today uh, we have with us uh, Mr. Hemant Malia. Uh, also, Dr. Deepak is there along with him. Uh, I'll quickly introduce Hemant. Uh, uh, Hemant is Senior Program Lead at CEW. Uh, he leads the Industrial Sustainability and Competitiveness Team at the Council. His work focuses on industrial growth through sustainable means. Uh, he is also the member of Council's Air Quality Team. He is currently leading efforts to analyze the potential for increased utilization of natural gas in the industrial sector and the corresponding impact on air quality and GHG. Uh, he is also leading efforts to analyze the potential for hydrogen-based economy and associated policy aids. Uh, I have engaged with Heyman uh, for quite some time, and uh, I can vouch that the quantum of detailing uh, what Heyman's Deepak and the team does, uh, I think it's, it's honestly uh, huge. Heyman, uh, uh, thank you so much uh, for uh, having us uh, 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 to allow uh, for having us you to present on. Uh, this session. Uh, I'll, I'll hand over the session to you, uh, post which we'll have a brief Q&A. Uh, thank you so much, Evans. Over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Vitesh, and thank you, Investec, for uh, having me uh, on this session. Um, you know, it was a fairly, uh, you know, elaborate kind of, uh, you know, introduction. Uh, we are doing a whole bunch of different things on industrial decarbonization. In fact, you know, that is one of the thrusting here, uh, and there is much more to come, you know, in uh, the months and years to come. Uh, this here is a, a snapshot of you know, what industrial decarbonization can look like. Um, very early days in terms of our analysis, etc. But like I said, you know, there'll be much more to discuss in the in the months to come. Um, so with that, I'll uh, you know very quickly introduce CW to those who don't know us. Uh, CW is uh, among Asia's leading policy research institutions. Uh, we are a not-for-profit policy think tanks are located in New Delhi, uh, India, and we also have a branch office in Lucknow now. Um, we work across seven different areas, and uh, myself and Dr. Deepak Yadav, who is also on the call, uh, we work in industrial sustainability and competitiveness team. Uh, one thing I must mention is um, we don't look at sustainability in isolation. We look at the competitiveness as well, because that is critical for uh, any sustainability measures to actually be implemented uh, at scale. Uh, CW also has a dedicated energy for, uh, center for energy finance, dealing with issues related to finance in the energy space. Um, in terms of our mandate, uh, you know, we use data integrated analysis and strategic communication to explain and change the use, reuse, and misuse of resources. So that in a nutshell is uh, Council on Energy, Environment, and Water. Going on straight into the presentation, um, let me first give you a context as to what we are looking at in terms of decarbonization. So India, you know, in 2015, and this is slightly outdated data because data is slow to trickle out uh, in India, um, you know, we had about 2.4 gigatons of CO2 emissions. Now, we are working on the 2017-18 numbers. This will grow marginally maybe to around 2.6-2.7 gigatons. So that's the quantum of emissions we are looking at in terms of the national decarbonization. Now, as you can see, you know, the major contributor to GAG is for the power generation sector. Uh, and we do have a solution in, in terms of the power sector, which is, you know, solar and wind. It's a fairly mature market. It's a matter of then, you know, expanding on the scope of PARI uh, in the sector. Of course, challenges are about, uh, but nonetheless, you know, the solution at least is, uh, you know, uh, in place. Uh, the second largest contributor is of course the industrial sector and you can see you know, about 27% uh, 
you know, with the thrust that the government has on manufacturing, we would expect this to grow uh, in the years to come. So it's, the problem only grows as time goes by. If you were to break down this 27% further into specific industrial sectors, then see that um, you know metal and cement and chemical and fertilizers and refineries are kind of the bulk of the emissions. Of course, iron and steel and cement are almost 50% of uh, the industrial sector emissions. So, uh, this is why you know a lot of discussion happening on these decarbonization in these two sectors. If you take the same frame and then break it down by fuel, again for the industrial sector, you can see a whopping 78% uh, of the emissions are coming from coal and inland. Not very surprising, uh, but that is the challenge we are dealing with. Utilization of some of the cheapest, yet the most carbon intensive. Um, and that will be the challenge for the industrial sector to overcome the cost barrier to address the significant energy barrier. So that kind of context of um, you know, what the decarbonization challenge looks like. I wanted to also talk a little bit about what does decarbonization mean because there's a lot of discussion, uh, you know, there are a lot of uh, words that are being used, decarbonization, net zero, you know, etc. Et what do they actually mean? Now, in very simple terms, in generic terms, what it means is decarbonization is the switching out of any fossil base of carbon-based fuel uh, and replacing it with a fuel that does not result in GHG emissions. Now, GHG emissions goes beyond CO2 only uh, and, it, you know, there's a whole other bunch of uh, uh, emissions that are powerful greenhouse gases, like methane, for example. In certain cases, methane is, uh, you know, a part of the fuel gas. Uh, and it's 28 times more potent than CO2 or nitrous oxide for that matter, which is, you know, a component of uh, transportation, you know, sector emission, uh, which is 300 times, you know, more potent than CO2. So, it's the replacement of fossil fuels with an alternative that eliminates all GAT uh, or majority of GAT. Now, the other term that is used is net zero, which is not necessarily decarbonization, because you can offset some of your emissions with, let's say, you know, a carbon sink such as growing trees. The unfortunate part is that we don't have enough space on this planet to grow enough trees to offset all of the CO2 emissions that are taking place and will grow in the future. Um, so, but that's what net zero means. Not necessarily emitting zero emissions, but balancing out the emissions with some form of sink. Now, carbon capture utilization and sequestration is somewhat in between because you don't necessarily replace your fossil fuel, uh, rather you capture the CO2 emissions or other greenhouse gas emissions and either utilize it or sequester it. So, you know, the jury is still out on whether CEUS is, you know, a net zero a proper uh, proposition or is it a decarbonization proposition. But it's used interchangeably. But I just wanted to kind of, you know, uh, clarify the difference of the whole more. So, jumping straight in, what are the different pathways for decarbonization? And, you know, I'll mention a few of them um, qualitatively in the uh, increasing order of difficulty from a techno-economic perspective. Uh, now, I have to say that depending on the specific use case, uh, you know, the sequence might actually change, but generally speaking, this is more. So, we want to talk about distributed renewable energy systems, electrification, so, you know, replacing uh, the utilization of fossil fuels for thermal energy into uh, utilizing, you know, power to generate the same amount of energy. Uh, the utilization of biomass and waste, we have abundant quantities of those. 
let's look at you know what the potential looks like concentrated solar thermal uh utilizing the heat from the solar system, you know uh, rays as opposed to generating power a development of synthetic fuels uh, as an alternative to fossil fuels uh, that we use right now carbon capture and utilization uh, which is capturing carbon and utilizing it in some useful form and then finally carbon capture and sequestration which is permanent sequestration in the so let's talk about the first one which is uh, distributed renewable energy now as of today there are there is more than 70 gigawatts of captive uh, you know power plant capacity in the country deployed by industry uh, now these are only units which are more than 1 megawatt in scale now there are many industries the nsm sector especially that use a lot of um, diesel based power generation uh, captive generation which is not a part of the 670 gigawatt so there is much more that is uh, you know there for switching of the 70 gigawatt only 4.5 gigawatt is coming from renewable sources which is captive generation the rest is still uh, thermal power meaning utilizing some form of fossil fuel uh, now from some studies uh, there are indications that in the nsme sector which is not really part of the 70 gigawatt there is a potential for uh, an additional 18 to 25 gigawatt of deployment of ai because they are currently using some form of captive uh, generation or even grid power but that's the potential for us now the government recently set a target for 40 gigawatts of uh, rooftop solar you know in general that includes both industry as well as uh, residential and commercial uh, of which only 6.5 uh, 6.1 has been realized uh, of that 6.1 i think about two two odd is industrial sector so you can see that there is a huge potential for uh utilization of either rooftop solar or distributed generation within the industrial you know, space uh, and the government also has set a target of uh, 2 gigawatt by 2022 for uh, off grid pg which is uh, either roof captive or you know a mini grid sort of arrangement and there uh, the progress will be little bit better in you know, 1.4 gigawatt has been deployed but like i said there is still that huge potential remains now the advantages of uh, utilizing something like a distributed renewable energy system is that it's a simple switch of uh, you know the source of power you don't have to change any of the equipment at the end um, and therefore uh, the switch is relatively easy of course the economic of the distributed generation is you know big question mark but uh, at least the switch is easier uh, from the end user perspective uh, and then also renewable energy is significantly cheaper than grid power so Uh, given that there is a lot of cross-subsidy that happens in the country, the industrial sector pays the highest uh, price for power across board across all states, and therefore switching in many cases might be a cheaper option. Now, having said that, though, there are significant challenges for this to um, actually be put into use. Now, for one thing, industry does not always have space uh, within its compound or within its premises. which means that it has to rely on you know space outside the fence line uh, that means you have to either purchase or lease land uh, it may not be immediately uh, you know next to the uh, end user and therefore if you are looking at uh, a group captive which is geographically or location wise uh, disjoint from the facility then you have to rely on the transmission grid and that's where things get uh, complicated because then open access charges Pretty much across all states are very expensive. So 
moving power within a state, uh, even within a state, let alone between states, uh, is a costly proposition. And again, discoms will always resist uh, this switch because the industrial sector is one of the most high-priced customer and you know is the one that actually grabs subsidizes all the other customers. So the discoms wouldn't want to lose uh, any of its customers. And therefore, it will be you know they won't easily let their grid be used by anyone moving power, but not through their um, you know pricing system. Uh, another challenge is the gross versus net metering uh, option, which is uh, industry does not, even if it puts group captive or captive uh, in place, um, RE is not available 24 7. So the intermittency has to be balanced either through the grid or through some storage. Uh, through the grid, it in some cases, or actually in many cases, is a viable solution if the uh, discom were to purchase power back from the um, industrial unit at the price, uh, you know, uh, which the power is selling during the time of the day. But typically what this firm will do is offer gross metering where uh, a single price is applied throughout, you know, the day and the year, which means the gross metering uh, pricing uh, is much lower than net metering and therefore the economics for distributed generation becomes uh, increasing. And we have to go to, uh, you know, storage options, uh, again, power storage options right now really expensive. So, um, overall, there is a huge potential, but given the construct of our grid and the market issues, uh, this is not penetrating quick enough, but clearly one of the lowest hanging fruits that we see in terms of decarbonization. The next one is uh, electrification of thermal loads. Now, what we mean here is currently a uh, lot of the low-grade heat uh, it could be in the form of hot air, uh, in, in the form of hot water, or low pressure and low temperature steam can potentially be electrified. That is something that has been looked at in Europe, for example, um, and, and is a possibility in the industry as well. However, we don't have any credible estimates for that because uh, within any uh, industrial facility, there are all kinds of heat requirements. Some of them are low grade, some of them are a higher grade, the lower grade are the ones which can be electrified. The higher grade ones are very difficult because the uh, the technical efficiency penalty is significant as you go higher on the temperature and pressure grade. Um, the advantages though are that instead of converting say in the longer run some form of renewable energy into a fuel and then again combusting it is much less efficient than directly utilizing the renewable energy. Right. And also the fact that renewable energy is cheap, uh, especially in the case of uh, distributed generation, um, then you can directly electrify some of these equipment. However, again there are challenges here, uh, because grid power is very expensive. We can't rely right now on uh, grid power to replace fuel-based uh, thermal needs. Um, also grid access and reliability are a problem. Access might be less of a problem now, but reliability certainly is, and you know, as we saw in the previous slide, uh, the reason for captive generation is that the reliability of the grid does not uh, exist uh, in, for the industrial uh, end user. And then, of course, uh, end use decarbonization, if it is not utilizing captive RE, uh, relies heavily on grid decarbonization. And uh, we'll shortly see why that is a problem. So, very quickly, uh, if you have to compare you know, the energy available. For thermal loads right now, um, grid power is the most expensive. Now, this is not for power use. Rather, if you were to use an equipment like a boiler, 
and then electrified it. Then on an energy basis, coal is the cheapest. Natural gas and coal is the second cheapest, and then grid power becomes the next. So from a cost perspective, uh, electrification still is a you know expensive proposition. Um, also in terms of like I said, the grid decarbonisation at least is a couple of decades away. So very quickly to explain the chart at the bottom right, uh, the the x-axis is the emission footprint of the grid. Uh, and the y-axis is the share of non-fossil power that is contributing to the grid power. Uh, now, non-fossil uh, here means um, not just renewable energy, but also things like geothermal and nuclear, uh, which are a part of our uh, energy mix. So, right now, if you see at the right bottom corner, only 22% of our power generation is coming from non-fossil-based um, uh, generation, uh, and the grid uh, footprint is about. 0.8 kg uh, CO2 per kilowatt hour. However, to achieve parity in terms of decarbonization with natural gas, the grid will have to be 65% non-fossil. Uh, and if it has to achieve, uh, sorry, with coal, it has to be 65%. And if it has to break even in terms of footprint, then the grid will have to be around 80% non-fossil. And that's where the challenge is. So even if we electrify uh, you know, utilizing grid, uh, the grid decarbonization at least, you know, is a couple of decades away. And therefore, it is not an immediate solution. However, electrification utilizing renewable energy at site, captive or group capture, is probably a feasible solution. Both from a cost perspective as well as uh, from an emission system perspective. Going on, uh, the next solution is uh, biomass and waste utilization. Uh, I won't, you know, get into the details of how many gigawatts of potential there exist. You know, these are some of the solutions. There are other, you know, waste pathways uh, such as used cooking oil or forest residue, etc. There is, the bottom line is that there is significant potential to utilize that. Uh, and there are significant advantages as well. So one thing is a domestically available source. It's a sustainable source. Um, because waste right now is being either, you know, burnt, um, just because there is no space or dumped into landfills again which results in more uh, greenhouse gas emissions and therefore it's, it's a sustainable solution as well. And from a government policy perspective, it's a very attractive proposition because it's um, in, in the case of biomass or waste utilization, especially biomass, uh, it can lead to additional employment in rural areas and therefore uh, formulating policy that might be uh, attractive uh, to industry users is relatively easy. However, again, there are challenges. Um, in the case of both biomass and waste, supply chains are almost non-existent. Uh, and they are susceptible to disruption. Because let's take the example of crop residue. Um, in the past, there have been power plants that were set up, uh, you know, hoping that they'll have very good access to um, you know, crop residue. However, once the power plants came into existence, uh, the farmers realized, hey, you know, we can get a better price for what they're selling and therefore they jacked up the price of crop residue and then that made the power even more expensive and then uh, the plants had to shut down. So there is that challenge of supply disruption and uh, inability to control the pricing. So unless there is a consistent mechanism for pricing, uh, it, it will become very difficult to uh, actually put you know, these solutions in place. Now there are some initial forays by states like Chhattisgarh where they are trying out uh, pricing mechanisms, if that becomes consistent across different states uh, and for different types of biomass, this might be a feasible option. 
uh, not necessarily at a large scale, but uh, definitely for smaller uh, industrial SMEs, um, where the supply chains are much smaller and tighter. Um, the other challenge is, of course, the nature of biomass itself. Waste, uh, of course, is a year-round supply. Uh, it has its own challenges because during rainy season, etc., waste gets wet, and then you know how do you utilize it because it is saturated with the uh, water. Uh, but in the case of let's say crop residue, uh, it's a very seasonal supply, and so they, therefore you either have to set up an inventory of the crop residue, or you have to uh, a better solution would be to have bulls or firing of uh, let's say a coal or a petco, where you are you know not necessarily displacing the entire food supply, but offsetting some of it, and of course uh, fossil uh, biomass or waste uh, based either gas or uh, power is much more expensive than fossil based uh, gas or power. So just to give you a sense of how difficult the proposition is, um, you know, we have substantial amounts of uh, forest and crop residue as well as municipal forest waste and MOPNG had come up with a subtle scheme where there was a target of setting up 5,000 uh, uh, biogas plants in the country, compressed biogas by 2025. However, of those 5,000, only about 15 have been, you know, deployed uh, from our understanding. So it's going very slow because although the opportunities exist, the business and the finance models are not really, uh, you know, being set up right. Um, Large-scale biogas plants are very, very difficult to commercialize because the economics are simply not there uh, as a consequence of heavy uh, supply chains. Moving on. Um, Concentrated solar thermal systems, again nothing new, this is something that has been around for a long time. Uh, this is unlike photovoltaic, capturing the heat from the sun's rays to produce, uh, you know, low to medium grade uh, thermal heat. So again, it's hot water or low grade steam or hot air. Advantage is of course it's a renewable and sustainable source uh, and it's very easy to integrate it into existing systems. So you don't have to change any of your uh, equipment or processes, it's a plug-in kind of uh, arrangement. And it uh, does not rely on any external supply chains. That also is a beneficial uh, solution. However, like everything else, it has its own set of challenges. Uh, typically, it's not cost competitive with fossil fuels. If you're looking at natural gas or coal or petco fired boiler and trying to compare it with, uh, compare the economics with, uh, let's say, a CST option, then, you know, you won't, uh, Achieve parity or alternatively the payback is uh, really long, you know, more than five years. Um, the other challenge with CSE is that you need direct sunlight. Unlike PV, which can use diffused light to still generate some amount of power, that's not truly the case with CSE. So unless there is direct sunlight, uh, the CSE does not operate. So there is, you know, greater intermittency as a consequence. Uh, and it's feasible only in areas like Gujarat or Rajasthan where most of the year, um, you have good sunshine. Uh, also, it's a diurnal solution similar to PV, where you have to either store the heat if the industry is functioning 24 7, uh, or you have to uh, dual kind of use it along with some possibility. So you can kind of back out some of your uh, thermal needs. Space is again a concern without uh, more so than let's say uh, photovoltaic because uh, PV panels can be set up on a roof, but uh, that's not so easy with uh, CSP systems which are large in, you know, size. Uh, and then, of course, for industry, there will always be the challenge if I have to deploy, if I do have space, 
and I have to deploy uh, some sustainable options and should I do a PD or should I do a CAC? Uh, and, and then again it uh, becomes a trade-off. So just to give you an example of CAC, uh, you know, this is a, a project that was supported by MLRE, which is a city dairy uh, facility in Sangli, uh, where they had uh, a boiler that was firing on solar soil for generating steam at about 150 degrees Celsius. Uh, and very low, uh, you know, pressure. And the capital cost uh, for replacing the conventional solar soil-based boiler was about 72 lakhs, uh, which is the cost of the CAC system. Now, without any subsidy, the payback would have been seven years. You know, the uh, recovery of the expenses. However, with the MNRE subsidy, it came down to 3.25 years. So that's kind of the trade-off that we're looking at. Uh, subsidy is necessary if. Uh, a shorter payback period is essential in terms of economics. However, if you know that is not a concern, uh, then in many cases CSC in certain locations can be a feasible option. So, having talked about all the uh, few replacement options, let's now talk about the carbon capture and, and associated solutions. So, so there is carbon capture, which is you uh, take the flue gas and separate out the carbon dioxide and concentrate it. And then you can either convert that into fuel, chemicals, or sequester it permanently. So there are two options for sequestration. One is mineralization. So you carbonate, um, you know, certain uh, chemicals uh, and and entrap the CO2 permanently. And there are certain uses for those mineralizers. Or you can inject it underground, which is commonly known as carbon capture and sequestration. So for fuels and chemicals. Uh, there is also the need for green hydrogen, so some amount of coupling will also be necessary because fuels typically mean carbo, uh, you know, carbon and hydrogen, uh, both uh, hydrocarbon, and therefore you do need hydrogen. And uh, some form of green hydrogen coupling is possible, um, which is something we will talk about shortly. So the first solution is uh, sequestration, which is not uh, underground injection or mineralization. So you can either convert carbon that is captured into synthetic fuels or chemicals. Um, also new age materials that are being talked about like graphene, etc. The Alliance recently you know, announced that they will also convert some of this CO2 that is captured into neutral particles. So there are a whole bunch of different options. Um, of course very early days the technology in most cases is not uh, mature or even such as at a lab scale has not been commercialized in textile. Um, however there is there is a significant potential to capture CO2 from point sources such as let's say steel factories or cement factories because the CO2 is all in one place. Um, and also there are several sectors where they can't decarbonize easily. For example, shipping and aviation, you can't capture CO2 nor can electrify because <coughs> the grid, sorry, excuse me, the battery density is not at a place right now or won't be even in the next two decades where shipping and aviation can use battery technologies to, to store energy. Uh, the only other option being nuclear, but given the, uh, the safety issues with nuclear, the way the technology has evolved thus far, it's not a solution. Therefore, for these sectors, uh, synthetic fuels are a very promising solution, as well as an economically feasible solution. Um, so what are the advantages? One is steep and declining RE cost. So like I mentioned before, so synthetic fuels, hydrogen, green hydrogen is a critical uh, component and, and because RE costs uh, are declining um, in the country, 
know, we can expect that in the next decade or uh, decade and a half, um, some of the synthetic tools might actually break even the software. The second advantage is, of course, synthetic tools will be dropping. Uh, for example, in the aviation sector, um, most engine manufacturers of uh, you know, the aviation sector claim that they can already use 100% synthetic tools. In fact, at five years recently, I think a year or two years ago, flew a plane with 25% blend of um, uh, synthetic fuel and uh, the standards etc. are all, all in place. I think up to 50% blending, the standards are in place. There is hardly any change required uh, either at the storage end, uh, at airport or uh, on the plane with it. So, uh, you know, from, from a KPEX perspective or operational perspective, it's a very um, attractive you know, solution. And a business proposition for those who have a significant amount of dense CO2 flue gas fuels. Uh, because the cost of uh, producing synthetic fuels goes down if the density of CO2 in the flue gas uh, increases because the cost of separation reduces as a consequence. Certain solutions can result in permanent sequestration, uh, like I mentioned earlier, mineralization, uh, you know, can or making of chemicals such as graphene will permanently lock in the CO2. And there is no you know, potential for again it's getting released to the atmosphere. And then there are certain latex plants where uh, it may not be feasible to change the plant processes or technology. It might be cheaper to just, you know, utilize, um, you know, synthetic fuels. Um, so that's also an option in certain niche cases. Uh, the challenge is, of course, um, CCU, if it is converted into fuel, is not a permanent sequestration solution. So once you combust the fuel again, the CO2 that was captured to make the fuel again goes to the atmosphere. So at most, you end up using the CO2 that was captured one more time. So uh, part of the envelope you have reduced the emission percentage. Uh, there are very limited technology providers. There are a few. Uh, a few of them also have started commercializing, but it's very early days uh, in terms of deploying it at large scale. At least I think another five to ten years before uh, we see large scale deployment. And currently, it's very, very expensive uh, to produce synthetic fuels in comparison to fossil fuels. So, just in terms of uh, the economics, if you look at the chart at the bottom right, you'll see that ammonia and methanol about 30-40% uh, more expensive than it is doing hydrogen based as opposed to fossil fuel waste. And if you look at the extreme right, um, synthetic diesel uh, is at least five times more expensive right now than conventional uh, petroleum based diesel. Uh, and very quickly at the top you can see, you know, there are multiple pathways for uh, synthetic fuel generation. One is of course renewable power uh, converted to green hydrogen and then uh, some form of uh, CO2 then combined with hydrogen results in synthetic fuel. You can also use biomass and waste uh, and gasify or pyrolyze it and then also use synthetic fuel. So uh, it's really where are the building blocks coming from. Is it coming from biomass? Is it coming from waste? Uh, is it coming from green hydrogen? Some have talked about uh, coal gasification and uh, combination with CCS, etc. So it's really a Lego play. Uh, there are different sources of uh, carbon, there are different sources of hydrogen, in some cases nitrogen as well. Uh, and then you combine it all together to form different combinations of fuel. And then finally, uh, carbon capture and sequestration, where you are permanently sequestering the CO2. Uh, at this point, uh, uh, there are, you know, very few estimates, credible estimates, I would say, on how much potential India has uh, for sequestration. We have our own set. These are some preliminary numbers. 
but the number could be anywhere between 174 to 650 gigatons of uh, storage potential. Now the reason why this uh, uh, potential varies, I'll come to a bit, but very quickly there is very little data available on the geology of the country um, and therefore it becomes very difficult to estimate the numbers. Uh, CPS of course has a you know, very uh, promising or attractive uh, proposition because it can lead to long-term sequestration without any changes uh, to the existing system. Uh, so we essentially capture all the CO2 and pump it underground. Um, and therefore it is a tail-end solution as opposed to changing anything under value chain. Uh, however, it has its challenges as well. ECS uh, cannot be a perpetual solution in the sense that let's say in the pessimistic scenario and by the way pessimistic here means uh, theoretical, very quickly, theoretical means what is, if you just take the geology into consideration and do the math, uh, we get a huge number of 674 or 652 gigatons roughly. But that's not necessarily all realization. For example, some of it uh, is in um, sensitive zones like military installations or for that matter under, um, you know, reserve forests and therefore not accessible per se. So although the potential exists, but we are not accessible. So the realizable potential takes into account some of these zones which are not easily accessible. Uh, the pessimistic capacity is really uh, overlaying other scenarios, operational challenges such as if you have capacity, let's say, in field, then you may not get access to the uh, capacity just because somebody else has the ownership about the surface of the ground. Uh, and so that's the pessimistic capacity. So, um, if you look at the pessimistic capacity 174 and combine that with other operational challenges that we are not even near in yet, such as laying pipelines uh, across the country and the financials, etc., um, we will quickly realize that the potential is not significant. Maybe it will last for 50 to 70 years, but post that CPS also goes off the table. Therefore, then we have to start looking at some you know, other solutions. Uh, so it's not a potential solution. Uh, governments and uh, not in my backyard issues will uh, definitely be there. Uh, in fact, right now we see uh, you know some serious resistance to even natural gas pipelines. So therefore, uh, you know we fully anticipate something like CCS where we have to move uh, potentially very high pressure uh, CO2 or CO2 in liquid form would have even more. Uh, challenges and issues from uh, from an infrastructure perspective, and then of course there is a governance issue. You know, it's one thing to put CO2 into the ground. The question is, who is going to monitor and take care of the site for the next 50 years, uh, while the CO2 then gets absorbed into the uh, you know geologic structure. So those are some serious questions that you know have not been answered, not just here but globally. Those are challenges, uh, and therefore CPS you know will have its own set of uh, non-technical issues uh, and therefore all this makes it a very high risk, low return, you know, from an overall perspective uh, and financially also it may not be a thing because you have to move large quantums of CO2 uh, all across the case. The end users uh, of fossil fuels that generate CO2 are not necessarily close to where the CPS sites are and we have a publication coming out in the next couple of months so uh, do be on the lookout, we plan to do an entire series of CPS uh, evaluation for the country. Um, very quickly before I come to my uh, recommendations or conclusions, uh, in terms of storage potential, there are four options in the country. One is um, oil and gas reservoirs, both 
uh, that are producing right now and will produce in the future, a relatively smaller quantum of CO2 can be absorbed here. Unused coal seams. So some of the coal seams in the country are not very promising uh, from a coal production perspective because either they are too deep into the ground or they are uh, very fractured and of low quality because uh, Indian coal has more of ash content. So you can potentially look at those as uh, CKS types. And then of course saline aquifers and basalt uh, are other geological formations where uh, carbon can be sequestered. However, at this point, there is very little data on these geological formations. Oil and gas reservoirs, you know, is a little bit easier because these are formations which have commercial purpose and therefore uh, there is a little bit more data. But as far as saline aquifers and basalt, much of the analysis is being done on a 2D assessment of what is underground. So we just know from the surface uh, where those saline aquifers and basalt may be, but we don't have a sense of how deep those formations are how, or how thick they are, what is the quality of basalt, what is the salinity of these aquifers, all of these are critical, crucial pieces of information that are needed to establish the true potential of CCS in the country. Uh, and we feel that given the lack of this assessment, um, CCS cannot at, at scale start at least for the next 20 years. And that is if we you know, march forward at you know, a mission mode. Uh, if we do it at the pace that we are used to, then we are looking at 30 to 40 years before we can even start, uh, you know, see the amount of ECS uh, in the country. Oil and gas reservoirs can happen, but that's more like 5 or 2 gigatons, uh, not substantial at all. So, CCS, although promising, has its, you know, challenges, uh, both uh, at a technical level because of lack of assessment as well as population uh, and economy. So, with all those uh, you know, different options, the question is what is what is needed for decarbonization because we are truly in the early stages of uh, evaluating all these options. And when we, you know, spoke to Ritesh, he wanted us to come up with economics and IRR and all of that, uh, but then, you know, we don't have those analyses. And some of the analyses that are being bandied about are truly don't represent what, uh, you know, is needed for India. Some of the numbers are coming from, um, you know, what was done in the developed countries, which has been going on for decades now. Um, so what is needed for decarbonization? For one thing, techno-economic evaluation of best options. For every sector, and even within the sector, let's take the cement sector, uh, the cement plants across different geographies or locations in the country uh, truly have very different uh, decarbonization solutions. So not only sector important, but location and technology is also important. Uh, so that is something that we are working on, uh, evaluating the techno-economics by sector technology and location. Um, one more important thing is, and since we are, you know, at the Investec ESG uh, conference, it's easier to, uh, for folks to understand, is, is the residual life and, you know, depreciation of equipment. It's not simply enough to talk about what can be deployed. It's also important to talk about how much is the cost or value of equipment already in place because somebody else has to pay for it. Somebody has to pay for what is the residual life of the equipment, we can't just dump it. Uh, and that has to be a part of the uh, calculation or the technology process. Then, as is with all um, solutions, be it in the power sector or decarbonization uh, in the industrial sector, large amounts of RE and capital are required. So, for example, in, in the case of green steel, if we had to decarbonize the 110 million tons of steel that we make today, uh, we need anywhere between 250 to 260 gigawatts of RE, solar. 
Uh, and that's only for existing capacity of steel. Not to talk about all the additional capacity that's planned in the steel sector or decarbonizing the entire industrial sector. We're talking thousands of gigawatts of uh, renewable energy. In terms of the cost also, it's much more expensive. Uh, green steel, for example, I think per ton of green steel we're looking at $3 billion worth of investment, which is significantly higher than the 0.7 or so billion required for a coal-based capacity. So, uh, the technology, you know, itself is not sufficient. Large amount of capital will be required uh, for decarbonization. And then, of course, technology development and piloting. Some of the solutions are available, but nobody has, um, you know, piloted them. For example, we talk about green hydrogen, and Deepak will talk about it in detail tomorrow. Um, if we had to blend green hydrogen, let's say, natural gas, uh, that we utilize today. Uh, we don't know how much um, blending is possible from an end use perspective. So there are a whole bunch of different kinds of furnaces, boilers, heaters that are out there, uh, but there is no clarity on you know how much of the, uh, the blending will affect the operation of these equipment. So piloting is required, and then of course technology development, because in many cases, uh, technology development can actually help us reduce the cost and therefore uh, improve the economics uh, of solutions. And again, Deepak will talk about some of it tomorrow in terms of electrifying and manufacturing, etc. And technology development is key. And uh, which is not been our forte as a country. Uh, however, it is necessary now uh, to develop technology. Otherwise, decarbonization for us will be further out. Um, this is a serious challenge from an economic perspective as well because we import about 140 to 150 billion dollars worth of uh, fossil fuel annually. So, a fraction of an amount uh, deployed in technology development can actually save a lot of foreign exchange. So, with that, I'll uh, close my session. Um, oh, actually, one more thing, sorry. Uh, supply chain repurposing. So, as we look at decarbonization, there's a significant supply chain in place, uh, both for petroleum fuels as well as coal. Uh, in the country and all of that will have to change. And that's not only an easy proposition, not just from a technical perspective or economic perspective, but also social perspective. Uh, millions of people rely on these supply chains uh, for their livelihood and uh, unless the supply chain issue is resolved and the transition planned effectively, uh, there could be a lot of social disruption and resistance to uh, decarbonization. So with that, I'll kind of... Uh, Close my presentation. Happy to take questions now. Uh, thank you so much, Raymond, for a very detailed and insightful presentation. I'll request the participants if you have any questions, uh, please raise your virtual hand. Uh, meanwhile, Raymond, I had a few questions for you. Uh, uh, if you can go to, I think, one of the earlier slides uh, wherein you had uh, indicated, I think, it was slide number three or four. Probably five. Uh, how can we decarbonize? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, perfect. So my question was basically, if one looks at, say, a steel plant uh, or a cement plant, uh, as per you, what is the best way forward, uh, given you indicated, I think, uh, CCUS is still far off, and you see most of the mills still announcing uh, CAPEX, which is through blast furnace route. Yes. Uh, is the government coming in? Um, is there scope for something on the policy, either a carbon tax or a carbon incentive? Uh, so what would be the best way forward for a cement mill and probably after that uh, uh, for, 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 a, for a steel mill and then uh, a cement mill? That's, that's the first question. 
Sure. So there is no forgiveness, and and this is where it becomes important, and it is also important uh, from a policy perspective that we look at a roadmap. And I say that because there is the intent even at the government end, and we do a lot of conversations with them. The challenge is there are so many solutions, there are so many challenges. How do they all come together? Now let's take this in industry as as an example. Uh, the ideal case would be, and for something we have talked about in our beginning uh, scheme publication, the ideal scenario would be looking at capacity addition differently from vintage capacity. So what I mean by that is. For all new capacity addition, if it were natural gas based, then it allows for an easier transition to green hydrogen in the future because the technology that is existing right now, uh, commercialized for natural gas, can potentially blend up to 60 to 70 percent green hydrogen. Now, of course, the vendors claim that it can also go to 100 percent. It's not being tested yet. However, 60 to 70 percent blending is pretty good from our perspective. Uh, it will reduce uh, the footprint substantially, right? Uh, and the beauty of that solution is that as the transition happens, there is no new capex. So the only capex you are putting is for your capacity expansion, right? Uh, so that would be the idea. Now, of course, the challenge there is uh, it is chicken and egg problem because industry will say, hey, but natural gas is really highly priced, right? However, the problem is unless the volumes of natural gas go up in the system. The prices cannot come down because it's a function of how much is used, and so therefore the government is stuck because it cannot formulate policies uh, because there is no use for natural gas. So you see that conversation is not happening where uh, people have come have to come to the table and say, you know what, I am willing to utilize this quantum of gas. What can we do in terms of price, you know, negotiations? Right? How can we lower the prices? What is really happening is, you know, patchwork solutions here and there. There, one plant here, one plant there is talking about natural gas. So that's where the the you know conversation kind of disintegrates. But anyway, coming back to the topic, the biggest solution is probably a combination of biomass, CCU, and CCS. Again, this is a very locational solution. You know, not all blast furnaces are going to be located where biomass is easily available in the vicinity. So we don't want to be moving large quantums of biomass, but in other cases it could be natural gas. So, for example, if there is any capacity that is being planned on the west coast or even on the east coast now, which is closer to let's say an energy terminal, then there is potential for natural gas injection, you know, to displace some amount of pulverized coal or coke in the blast furnace area. So it's a combination of solutions. Right? Um, and unless you look at the supply chain, unless you look at all the options available, you can't come up with a roadmap. So I know I'm not directly answering your question, but the point I'm trying to make is there is no silver bullet. Right. Uh, are there any locations globally, say in Europe, uh, where they have tried any of these permutations that uh, you indicated uh, from a, from a viability standpoint? So there is the hybrid, you know, which uh, solution green hydrogen that is being bandied about, but that is a very small, you know, plant. I think it's a one NPPA plant, um, which is not a full-blown commercial solution. A. Secondly, Europe, when it comes to steel utilization, how much steel they utilize per capita, it's a very mature economy. So they have sufficient amount of scrap. So then you know use a different pathway, which is recycling of that steel with amount of amount of additional virgin steel, but bulk of it is uh, recycled steel. 
and therefore you electrify the 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 process and then the steam becomes green that's not an option for us because we need for a significant quantum of steam to grow as an economy right so we don't have an option we don't have enough scrap to make bulk of our steam through recycling having said that though uh there are options you know on the west coast especially in rajasthan gujarat etc where there is good iron also there is a good industrial belt there especially if you look at the haryana gurgaon belt where there is a lot of industry and there is a lot of scrap generated to take that scrap and then convert it into uh recycled steel using renewable energy from rajasthan for example and that's why you know that is a part of the mix right um so therefore we have to look at it very specifically from the indian context and also put all the solutions on the table and then say what is possible sure uh, how does coal gasification actually uh, start in so you have one of the companies jindal steel and power uh, they have a coal gasifier uh, they have synthetic gas which is a combination of carbon monoxide hydrogen plus plus mm-hmm. and uh, they use uh, this as a reducing agent uh how how does this fit uh, in the overall scheme of things from decarbonization is it good is it bad so we are going to release our analysis hopefully in the next month or so uh, where we have done a life cycle assessment of three pathways for steel or rather iron steel the steel is a subsequent step uh and one is natural gas based the other is coal based which is a blast furnace out and the third is coal gasification and utilization of that coal gas uh you know for making steel or iron and when you do the comparison on an lca basis there's barely any difference between coal gasification and blast furnace in terms of footprint whereas natural gas is probably 40 to 50% lower in terms of its footprint um and now having said that i want to put a caveat that often coal gasification is talked about in you know consonance with ccs so if at all there is ccs then of course you know it changes the equation but without ccs uh, and without uh, utilizing renewable energy for auxiliary load there is barely any difference between coal gasification and, and blast furnace interesting uh, would you have any numbers say for a million ton steel plant uh, how much ccs would be required uh, say any ideal number just to understand you given number I, of 3 billion dollars right yeah i don't uh, deepak do you have any sense I don't, I don't think we have done the math but the professor no we have yeah, we have okay uh, that's that's really useful uh, uh i'll request the participants uh, apurva if you have any specific questions uh, please uh, jump in to uh, raise your virtual hand uh meanwhile himat uh, i had another question uh, specifically for uh, cement mills uh, to what my understanding is i think kiln is one part of the equation uh but the emissions are far more uh, spread out uh what is the ideal solution for a cement mill actually uh, so that will take a question from mr rashekar so now for sector you know cement kiln is a beautiful process because it can practically take garbage right so uh you know more utilization of mlw and waste is something that is you know probably the lowest hanging fruit now having said that the cement industry has been trying hard uh however the utilization doesn't go i think if i'm not mistaken it's only 5 or 6% of waste that is being utilized the problem is accessing that waste in the form that they want right uh, and that's where the supply chain becomes an issue that's where the political you know uh, 
ecosystem so to speak becomes a challenge uh, otherwise that's the easiest thing so that's one having said that um, i think ccs is almost a necessity or it maybe a ccu is a necessity for development because it's not simply a function of the fuel right it's a process itself that generates almost half of the uh, the dhgs that come out of a fuel so that is one but also utilizing other you know techniques such as i think some of the in, uh, in um, cement industry folks have already started doing is reducing the clinker amount in the cement so solutions like those uh, as well as better architecture etc uh, will have to play a role in terms of you know decarbonizing the cement sector right uh, just one last question i think i, I did ask uh, i think we missed it what is the solution uh, way forward uh, is it a carbon tax uh, or is it a carbon incentive uh because what you are stating from basically the technology is available on the slide which is there in front of us uh if i am a promoter of a company my incentive to do something it seems to be very very little i either i need a stick or a carrot so would love to have your thoughts and probably how the government could potentially approach this so i don't think you know we have a firm you know opinion on this Uh, but you are absolutely right. One thing is for sure, decarbonization is not a zero cost solution. Right. So there is no. Um, it is a trade-off when it comes to the intangible cost as a consequence of greenhouse gas emissions and climate change and all that, which are not a part of economic calculation right now as of today. Right. Uh, I think you know. Now having said that, there are murmurs in the government that. The carbon price is something that you have to be looked at. Whether whether it will be a carbon tax, whether it will be a cap and trade, uh, I don't think you know there is clarity there yet. But I think uh, the price on carbon is you know coming closer than we think. It has already happened for those who are uh, exposed to exports, right? Either directly or indirectly. So we have seen that in case we don't know. The US has said that they will also consider. So if they put you know. Uh, um, a price on carbon of all imports then we are indirectly exposed so i think that is the stick that will come um the question is you know whether the industry wants to look forward and plan for it now or wait for the stick to come and then act in terms of carrot i don't know what can be a carrot uh, here <laughs> i um, it is difficult to think of a carrot to uh, other than your own uh, corporate targets etc sure that's that's useful Uh, I'll request Mr. Raj Shekhar to please unmute and uh, ask the question. Hi, hi. Good afternoon, Hemant. Uh, good afternoon. Raj Shekhar from Delhi, India. We were evaluating this concentrated thermal thermal, uh, you know, uh, solar solar thermal one. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, of course, it is not IR. There is no IR for this, and long IR or another thing. But you also mentioned one example of Sangli. It where there is a subsidized where it brought down the IR by substantially lower. Is that subsidy is any specific industry get subsidy or government or state government or central government something like that? That was an MNRI scheme, and then Deepak, you might have more info there. So Deepak has actually uh, been a part of some of the piloting for CSD uh, as a part of the CSD. Uh, but my understanding is that was a subsidy given by MNRI. Correct, Deepak? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's the case. Is it one point? What is MNRI? 
Minister of New and Renewable Energy. Okay, okay. Thank you, Mr. Rajasekhar. I will request Mr. Anjal to please unmute and ask a question. Yes, thank you, Ritesh, and hi, Hamas. This is Anjal from Cement Sector. This is regarding the decarbonated model which you have shown for limited applicable for all the sectors. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know that the cement sector, Indian cement sector, they have took all the best uh, efforts to decarbonize the cement sector by reducing the clicker factor where the best is utilized and also like, by putting the best into the system where the best is utilized to produce the power. And also the use of RE and uh, yes, obviously the power which the uh, cement sector using right now, this could be the Hundred percent replaced by the renewable energy, okay. And also, the cement sector is replacing the fossil fuel by use of the biomass and industrial and other ways. So, all these levers and keys are able to decarbonize the sector. The cement sector is putting their best and investing to decarbonize the product. But even though taking all these available uh, levers, definitely 30 to 40 percent emission would be there which need the uh, emerging technology, which you have uh, already discussed, the CTUS and hydrogen technology. Mm-hmm. And you know, the cement uh, industries are spreaded uh, uh, at various locations in the, in the country. So how do you uh, think that the CTUS technologies and hydrogen technologies are economically viable uh, with respect to their geographic position in the country? And what to do when these CTUS is installed and captured with CO2 does it economic viable to capture and what is the end solution for this capture thing? And how the hydrogen can be utilized in the cement sector, where it will be used and how it will reduce the carbon emissions further and what is the capex in the opex model so that the cement can be social good as well as environmental and economically good for us. No, a, a serious challenge and one thing I must state uh, for those who don't know, the Indian cement industry is probably one of the world's best, uh, much more um, efficient than the global average uh, per ton of cement produced. So, uh, definitely kudos to the industry. Uh, it, is a, it is a challenging, you know, endeavor. But let me propose one solution. And I'm not saying this is, you know, a universal solution, but let's look at one solution. So, Europe is looking for green fields. Uh, they are much ahead of us. They have the ability to absorb some of the things. Can we look at a solution where uh, a cement plant is utilizing green hydrogen? So it can be an extension of its existing business where you utilize green hydrogen along with the CO2 you capture, convert it into something like a methanol, and then ship it for export. And there is a market for it. Right? Uh, and even domestically, uh, you know, there is a lot of thrust on ethanol, for example. Uh, right now, the ethanol scene is coming from um, uh, grain-based um, solutions, right? But one of the things that we have recommended to the ministry, and I think it is a part of the NITIO um, document as well, that alternative pathways need to be explored. So, if you can tap into the ethanol market, for example, so your CO2, that is a problem, can actually become a business proposition. So, that is one way. The other could be CCS in other locations where um, the CCS 
the underground geology is favorable, for example, or it is in closer proximity, so you don't have to move a lot of CO2. So those are different solutions that will be will have to be looked into, Mr. Kumar. I don't think I have uh, a single solution for the entire industry. Which is why I said the geography, the technology, the vintage, as well as what new technologies have to be deployed, uh, the techno-economics have to be evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis. Something which we plan to do, and if you have interest, you know, we're happy to kind of uh, work with you to uh, do a case or two, maybe for your plan. Yes, definitely. Uh, thank you for your valuable uh, uh, insights. And definitely the PCUS and uh, hydrogen system will depend on the geographic location of the plant because cement is not a high technology item. This depends on the logistic cost as well. Correct. So and the cement industry is such that it's a, it's a very razor thin margin industry. Um, unlike, you know, that even steel where the margins are probably higher than what you get in steel. So it's a bulk commodity with very small margin uh, and so you have to be looked at very differently. Yes, definitely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But, uh, Hemant, probably I'll just take one last question before we close in. Uh, uh, we are hosting one company called Carbon Green uh, UK. Uh, they, I think, are doing a pilot project for Dalmia uh, and Dalmiapuram. Now, the cost over here is quite prohibitive. Uh, I think the OPEC is itself $30 per ton of carbon, which is actually usual, honestly not a viable proposition uh, on a sustainable basis. Uh, what do you think is the solution over here? Uh, what should so the management do? So, is it only capturing the CO2? Uh, it is capturing uh, the CO2 and post that what they are doing, um, uh, nobody has much idea about that. Okay, I think we will have to talk to them and get a little bit more information with it because the end utilization or sequestration also matters. So, the $30 is only part of the, probably uh, only part of the problem. What happens subsequently is also important. Because there are technologies where they are utilizing CO2 along with, uh, you know, bacterial cultures to convert that into fuel. You might have heard of Lanzatech. Um, so there are these technologies as well. It totally depends on uh, you know the entire uh, proposition as opposed to the first step. I think what you are talking about is only the first step. Right. Right. That's very useful. Uh, I think we are running out of time. Uh, I'd like to thank all the participants for joining in and uh, uh, sincere thanks to Mr. Raymond and Dr. Deepak uh, for uh, taking time out and helping us with a very insightful presentation. Uh, is there any queries from the participants? We will definitely route it to you, uh, Mr. Hemant and Dr. Deepak. And thank you once again on behalf of uh, Industec uh, for a fantastic and insightful presentation. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity and please do reach out if you have any specific questions or uh, you, know, you want to talk to us. Sure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. And uh, do remember to join in tomorrow at Kenneth Law for the first session. Thanks once again. Keep safe.